This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Dr. Pamela Dunlap. She's with the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh. Welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. We're going to talk about a study that she and her colleagues published recently in PTJ. It's called Fear Avoidance Beliefs Are Associated with Perceived Disability in Persons with Vestibular Disorders. The authors set out to look at the association between fear avoidance beliefs and disability at three-month follow-up in just over 400 persons who had vestibular disorders, and they were recruited from tertiary care balance disorder clinics, as well as outpatient physical therapy clinics. Dr. Dunlap, I really enjoyed the study And let me begin by asking you to talk a little bit about the background. You you talk about how avoidance of movement and activity and environments will lead to abnormal sensory motor processing, space and motion discomfort, and that will lead to inhibition of vestibular compensation processes that are necessary for recovery. Could you talk a little bit about that in people with vestibular disorders? So vestibular compensation occurs through spontaneous recovery and through the stimulation of the vestibular system, which which happens when we move. Vestibular compensation mechanisms refer to those plastic changes and reorganization of central nervous system structures. Avoidance of movement, in particular head movement, can lead to either protracted compensation or incomplete compensation. Emerging research tells us that early intervention for vestibular hypofunction results in better VOR function, improved gaze stability, and lower handicap. So we think there might be a critical period for this compensation to occur. And so avoiding movements and activities within this period could be detrimental to recovery. Regarding, It almost sounds counterintuitive to what people tend to believe. Right. They think uh, I'm feeling dizzy, so I shouldn't move, you know, provoke that dizziness sensation. Exactly. And then regarding sensory organization, when someone experiences a vestibular insult, they may need to rely more heavily on other systems to maintain their balance, such as visual or somatosensory systems. As they compensate for the vestibular dysfunction, though, they should regain that ability to rely on vestibular input to maintain their balance. If someone avoids experiences which may force them to use their vestibular system, they may develop a more permanent reliance on the visual and somatosensory systems. And this can have implications for a loss of balance and falls when they're faced with balance challenges such as being in dim lighting, darkness or on uneven surfaces where vestibular inputs are needed. So they can get into a negative feedback cycle. Correct. And same with space and motion discomfort. This this is referring to the discomfort, postural instability, or exacerbation of symptoms. 
within visually challenging environments. And we know that habituation training or gradual graded exposure to a stimulus can help with the space and motion discomfort. But the reverse is also true if someone avoids environments or movements that make them dizzy or uncomfortable, it may lead to more and more oversensitivity to similar movements or environments. And we see this a lot with patients having difficulties in like grocery stores, riding in a car, on a bus, and in other overstimulating environments. Okay, well that's helpful background. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, your sample. As I mentioned in the intro, you had just over 400 individuals. They all had vestibular disorders. But you noted in your study that they, the level, the severity was relatively mild. Was that intentional or was that just a consequence of the challenge of getting more severely impaired people in the study? Yeah, so we did not specify in our inclusion criteria that this had to be, um, you know, an acute vestibular disorder. Um, so some of the participants sample, you know, may have already partially compensated for their problem or adapted their behaviors in order to manage their symptoms at the time of our first visit. So I think that's one reason why, um, you know, they had only mild impairment. Would you expect the, the findings to be different in the more severely involved, um, What's your thinking on that? I know you can't speak to it directly from this study, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. I do. I think uh, at a more acute time period, uh, individuals may experience more fear avoidance. And then, like I said, as they kind of adapt their behaviors or their symptoms improve, um, you know, certainly some of those individuals will become less fearful over time. Now, you noted in your paper that you lost 30% of the sample in your follow-up. Um, had you predicted that? What was your anticipated loss to follow-up? Yeah, we were actually happy with the 30%. You know, we've, we weren't exactly sure, but um, we were thinking 30% or even more uh, may be lost to follow-up. Um, but so we weren't... Um, too disappointed by, by that finding. Did you look at the characteristics of the people who were lost? I, I did note in the study, you mentioned that the unemployed women, unemployed and women were more likely to complete the study. Anything else that we know about the, the completers versus non-completers? That was all that we found, um, and we kind of hypothesized that maybe those individuals who were unemployed may have had more time to, you know, complete the follow-up questionnaire. Um, but of course, that may, um, you know, bias the results to individuals who are experiencing more disability um, because they're not yet back to work. Yeah. Um, but we do know that vestibular disorders are more prevalent in women, so we were not, um, too concerned, you know, that there was uh, more women that followed up than men. Um, but we did not find any differences in baseline patient reported outcome measure scores among those um, who were lost to follow up compared to those who completed. Did you offer them an incentive to complete the follow up? We did, yes. It's always a challenge, isn't it? And this was all done pre COVID, right? 
It was, yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> I don't think we would have had 400. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. The whole world changed in, in 2020. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit now about your findings. You, you did run some regression models and in your final model, you note that the following variables were significant predictors. The number of medications that the sample was taking, your vestibular activities avoidance instrument, you had dizziness uh, visual analog scale, as well as a anxiety and depression scale. They were all predictive of activity and participation with a fairly robust um, R-square. That model explained close to 40% of the var variance at three months, which I thought was quite good. Could you talk a bit about the, the relevance uh, clinically and otherwise of those that predictive model? Yeah, I think that, you know, it may be that this cluster of findings at initial visit can tell clinicians something about the prognosis of their patient. So the model tells us that those who are experiencing more severe dizziness, more severe depression symptoms, have more comorbidities, which we think is what number of medications is telling us, and more fear avoidance beliefs. This is associated with greater disability at three months. So this means that the presence of psychological and behavioral factors at initial visit could be an indication of a protracted recovery or that the individual may need some additional treatment for these factors. Um, of course, as I mentioned before, these participants in our study were not necessarily in the acute phase of their vestibular disorder and were not collected at the initial physical therapy evaluation. So this is just a hypothesis. Um, we'll need to measure fear avoidance beliefs at initial evaluation in vestibular rehabilitation clinics and then monitor disability measures upon discharge to see if this model is upheld in physical therapy settings specifically. But if it is, it might suggest that even in the mildly impaired, people with these factors might need more help. Mm -hmm. yes, Not exactly. everyone, but these people in particular. You did do a, a deeper dive on the vestibular activities avoidance instrument, and you, you showed that for every one point increase in the vestibular activities avoidance instrument, there was approximately a 0.02 point uh, impact on follow-up activity and participation, controlling for the other variables in your model. Help me understand the importance of that magnitude of relationship. So the VAP is uh, the vestibular activities and participation measure is measured on a scale from zero to four. So relatively small changes could potentially be clinically meaningful. However, a change of only 0 0.02 is not likely clinically meaningful. Um, when the vestibular activities and participation measure was developed, um, Dr. Alguri and colleagues found that the standard error of the measure was 0.2 and the minimum detected change was 0.58. I'm not aware of a minimal clinically important difference value for the vestibular activities and participation measure in the literature. Um, and I think, you know, more research needs to be conducted, you know, in order to determine the clinically important change values for the vestibular activities and 
participation measure and for the vestibular activities avoidance instrument. So if the MDC is about 0 0.06, then a three-point increase in the vestibular activities avoidance instrument would correspond with an approximate MDC change in your outcome. Uh, I'm sorry, the MDC is 0 0.6. Ah, uh, 0 0.6, okay. okay. So it'd be more well, like a change of 30 points, I guess, on that. Right. Okay, well, that, that puts it into some context. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that struck me really quite interesting is you note in your article that um, activities avoidance is associated not only with activity and participation, but it was associated with dizziness, function, quality of mental as well as uh, physical health as measured by, I think it was the SF36. So SF12, yes. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's related to a lot of different outcomes. What do you make of that finding? I think it speaks to the validity of the vestibular activities avoidance instrument in persons with vestibular disorders. We had hypothesized that fear avoidance beliefs would be associated with symptom burden, function, quality of life, disability, and psychological distress. From what we know about fear avoidance beliefs in this population and in other patient populations. Um, but until recently, we didn't have a measure available to identify fear avoidance beliefs in persons with vestibular disorders, which is why the vestibular activities avoidance instrument was initially developed. Um, however, we do recognize that additional research should be conducted to assess the convergent uh, and predictive validity of the nine item vestibular activities avoidance instrument in a separate sample so that we can identify the validity of the nine item version in a stand as a standalone outcome measure. Well, let's accept for the moment that it's a, it's a valid measure and you've shown in their study that there may be some important relationships here. What can clinicians do about activity avoidance to help people yeah, so, you know, from the literature on fear avoidance among those with chronic pain and literature on fear of falling among older adults, we know that psychologically informed cognitive behavioral and graded exposure treatment approaches can help individuals who are more fearful and avoidant of movement. We think that some of these same principles can be applied to individuals with vestibular disorders and hopefully result in improved outcomes in those who experience fear avoidance beliefs with their dizziness. Vestibular rehabilitation paired with cognitive behavioral techniques and mindfulness has demonstrated efficacy in persons with vestibular disorders. Um, there have been some mixed results when cognitive behavioral techniques were targeted at specific diagnoses, such as among persons with persistent postural perceptual dizziness. However, the research is really limited right now, and you know, we don't yet know the appropriate guidelines or specific protocols for persons with dizziness and fear avoidance beliefs. So we hope that the vestibular activities avoidance instrument can help to facilitate the measurement of fear avoidance beliefs in vestibular rehabilitation clinical practice 
so that we can work to develop these specific treatments for these individuals. I'm glad to hear that you drew some parallels with the fear of falling literature, because it struck me in reading your article to be very similar. And we showed uh, years ago that you really could do something to reduce fear of falling in older individuals. And I would hope that we'll see more of that kind of work coming out of this area of investigation. Are you pursuing any trials of this nature? I am not at this time. We are working on the reliability and validity of the nine item version. So um, that research hopefully will be coming out soon. Well, Dr. Dunlop, really, I appreciate your taking the time to talk about your study with me. I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at the article in PTJ. I really think it uh, taps into an important area of investigation and clinical practice. And so thank you and continued success in your work. Thank you. And I would, if I may, just like to acknowledge um, my dissertation committee. This was part of my uh, dissertation study. And um, so my dissertation committee was consisted of Drs. Delito, Furman, Hetty, Sparto, Staub, and Dr. Whitney. Dr. Susan Whitney was my dissertation committee, committee chair. And also, I would like to acknowledge the funding that I received for this research through the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences PhD Student Award and through the Academy of Geriatric Physical Therapy. This is an APTA podcast.